how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're bottom. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Australian actor, writer, director Josh Lawson always wanted to be involved in filmmaking. While in drama school and college, he kept up with his writing and eventually moved to writing sitcoms and movies like TV Burp, Kenny, The Little Death, and most recently, Long Story Short. You've probably also seen him in movies like Mortal Kombat, where he plays Kano, along with roles in The Eleven O'Clock and Anchorman 2. Lawson is the writer-director of the romantic comedy Long Story Short. The movie stars Ralph Spall and Sarah Newman. The description reads, Teddy wakes up in the morning after his wedding to discover that every few minutes he's jumping toward in the next year of his life. In this interview, we discuss high-concept comedies, why comedy films are often overlooked today, creative editing versus reshoots, lessons from James Burroughs, who directed Cheers, Will and Grace, why he dislikes mumblecore films, and how to embrace adventures with magical realism. Well, it, it start, obviously started off as acting. Acting was the first thing. I was a child actor and then uh, uh, did that, you know, passionately for, for a long, long time. But then as I got, when I, I was always writing, writing was the next one. So even in high school, I, I would write, you know, like plays and musicals and stuff that we'd just put on. It was always just something fun. I always uh, just had the bug to, to create stuff. And even when I was in drama school, on top of all the productions that we would perform as part of the curriculum, I, I would, you know, write new stuff and, and put it on, in you know, uh, on the weekends or whenever we, you know, had any downtime, I'd always be writing and making stuff. And then out of university, I would continue writing for theatre and then put those on. And from that, I got offered a job writing for a sitcom here in Australia. And um, and so the writing was the was the the next logical step where I was just always had stuff to say. And then I think I'd worked enough in the industry to uh, uh, realize this uh, truth, and that is most directors that I had worked with didn't appear to really know what they were doing. And that's not to say they were bad directors, not at all. It just, 
I, you know, you put, I had put them on a pedestal and assumed that they had this sort of superpower. And then as I got older, I was sort of watching them a bit more closely and realizing, oh, they're sort of making it up as they go along. I mean, it, it you know, I, I could see what they're doing and what they're doing is nothing beyond my scope. And I was like, okay, I could do that. And then when I'd written um, a film called The Little Death, uh, I had originally thought I'll get some other director to do it. And then as it got, took longer and longer to make, at one point I went, no, I'm going to direct this. This is crazy. I, I can, I, I, don't, I don't trust any other director with it, really. Mm. Um, and so f- at that point I started directing short films and then my feature and, and, uh, and then, so the directing thing came uh, from, I guess, not wanting to relinquish control uh, over the project. And, um, and, and it became a really satisfying, uh, you know, um, avenue to take because it was, I loved acting so much, but directing good actors was in a weird way, it was almost as satisfying um, as acting, you know, as doing a good role as an actor myself. Just being able to be around good actors and being, you know, uh, and watching them, you know, act well with the material you've given them, that that somehow satisfied me as an actor. Um, so yeah, I think as I got older, I, I my my passion for acting dimmed a little, um, partly because I wasn't really getting roles that were exciting me that much. And then, um, and so I was writing, you know, great stuff. And then given the budgets that I had to work with, it it just didn't seem feasible or responsible to act in them, uh, in major roles, because I just didn't have the schedule to allow for that. I mean, the budgets were really low, which meant the, you know, minimal shooting days, which meant we really didn't have a lot of time to go back to watch playback and look at my own performance. I was like, look, let's just eliminate that, that disaster altogether and get someone better. And, 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 um, and I can just take that pressure off and, and I'll just pop up and in a scene here or there and um, do my little Hitchcocky and hello and, and disappear. Yeah. What do you think if maybe some other actors you talk to who are, are thinking about taking the transition to directing, but they're still fearful. Is it mainly just like being able to think on your feet all the time? You're answering hundreds of questions a day. I would imagine like, what's the, is it just confidence? What do you, what do you see as kind of the key to stepping into it? Yeah, it's, it's a lot of things. I mean, it does seem very chic now uh, to become to, for an act, actors to become directors, right? It almost feels like, oh shit, I better do it. I'm, I and and I don't know if I agree with all that. I mean, it's really not for everyone, mm-hmm. um, and that's not to say it's beyond everyone's grasp. It's just it may not suit your personality type for for some of the reasons you mentioned. Confidence, yeah, in the sense that all these the, all these people who are there on set. You, you do have to instill a certain confidence in them that you know what you're doing so that they don't feel like they're turning up to work and leaving their families all day and you have no clue. I mean, that, that would be irresponsible for them to get home at the end of the day going, sorry, honey, I'm, I, I know I'm late. I didn't put the baby to bed. This fucking clown on set, man, I don't know what he's doing and I don't think he knows what he's doing. At least it would be a try, you know, a good director should be able to let the crew go home at the end of the day feeling like they're doing something good. And, you know, so there is, I think confidence plays a role in that. It's also about communication. How, how good a communicator are you? Are you able to communicate your vision? Um, to, I mean, I've had directors direct me and they've been like, I don't know, it's, it's not what you, what you just did, not that, but something else. And I'm like, what the fuck does that mean? Something else? Yeah, well, I mean, what a terrible 
director you are. If you can't communicate exactly what you're missing, mm. I'm not sure this is the job for you. I mean, it's almost it's almost the fundamental uh, you know requirement of this job is to be able to talk clearly and concisely about what it is your vision is. Um, but uh, it's also really this may, might be the biggest one. How good are you at solving problems on the fly? Because that is directing constantly. So whatever your whatever your best laid plans are, assume they'll all go to shit in the blink of an eye. You don't get preparation for it. It'll all go to shit one, in a moment, and within five minutes, you better have a really good alternative solution. So it's it's a lot about problem solving. If you're not a good uh, you know spontaneous problem solver, it may not be the job for you. If you panic and freak out and yell and scream, David O. Russell, uh, you know, it, it, you know, even though he's a good director, that would not be my recommendation to yell and scream at people. I don't think that's um, that's a good way in any industry to get results. But um, you know, I uh, uh, yeah, it, it, it requires a lot of uh, different things that make certain personality types um, particularly suited to it. For some of the pieces where you've been the writer or director, maybe you've had a cameo in there. Do you see a connection between all of these? Are you are you leaning towards comedy? Like, what do you where do you see yourself going forward? Uh, it's, a t- it's a tough one. I love comedy so much. They were the movies that really inspired me. I think there is it, it's a sweet science to get comedy right. The heartbreak is that comedy tends not to um, have as loyal an audience as other genres, right? So the heartbreak is you you put. I would, I dare say comedy might be, if not the hardest genre to pull off, right? It's, it's probably a lot harder to make a thousand people laugh at the same time than it is to make them scream at the same time, you know, probably easier to kind of go boo and everyone go, right? That's not as difficult than telling a joke that no one's ever heard of before in a way that no one's ever felt and then getting them all, knowing that we all have different senses of humor, but you know, it's, that's tough. <clears throat> And I'm not quite sure that comedy gets the recognition as the serious art form that it is. Mm. You know, it certainly gets overlooked in uh, awards um, and, and it, it tends to get overlooked by audiences. And it, it, it does t- seem to be looked down upon even by people within the industry. You know, actors sort of go, oh, I don't want to do a comedy. I want to do something worthy. And it's like, yeah, because that'll probably get you a trophy, but that's not because it's harder it's not because it's better. It's just because for some reason, comedy's forever been considered the bastard cousin of mm. drama. Um, so I love comedy. I'm always trying to get better at it. I'm always trying to master it or, or, or figure it out, which is impossible because it's constantly changing. You know, our senses of humor. If you look back at what was funny in the 80s, to the 90s to now, it's all very different. Mm. We're constantly evolving. But I am very drawn to do something new partly because I, I like to challenge myself and partly because I, I, I do get a bit um, crestfallen when, uh, you know, the audiences don't seem to get excited about new comedies as quite as much as other, other genres. What do you think? Um, tell me a little bit about where you came up with the idea for long story short. It's definitely like a high concept idea where the comedy is there do you try and come up with so many ideas a year and they're all different and then that's the one I'm going to go after? How do you kind of think about when you're, what's the next thing you're going to write? 
Yeah, well, certainly got a huge document on my computer of ideas that I've written down and spurs of the moment going, there might be something there and I'll just write down a log line and, you know, I have no shortage of that. More more ideas there than I'll ever get a chance to make in, in you know, 10 lifetimes. But um, one will, one, one or two will bubble to the surface um, depending on what it is I'm trying to say. So these days, instead of going, oh my God, what a cool idea if someone jumps forward in the future. In fact, what I'm really doing is going, I want to, I feel like I'm wasting my life. I'm sorry, I go for the bigger um, yeah. idea, right? What am I trying to say about the human condition? Which is, fuck, I mean, where do the years go? Am I wasting it? Um, you know, we only get one shot at this thing. What's the best way to tell that story? You know, and and so I go, oh, well, you know, I had written down this time jumping thing and that is actually a pretty good way to tell that story. So I sort of combined that. And, um, and, and so for me, it's much easier to write if I have uh, something to say, a, th a theme that, uh, about which I'm passionate. And then it is about going, oh, fuck it. This is about a guy who can fly. Shit, what am I trying to say? I don't know. It's, spread your wings. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't quite work as well the other way. So I think if you're, if you're passionate about saying something, and I always try and do that these days as I get older, I'm like, I'm actually passionate about this issue. So what's the story that can tell that? And, and then when I get writer's block or I hit, you know, walls in the writing process, I just go back to go, what are you trying to say about the world? Don't overthink it. Just find a scene between two of the characters that gets that message across or asks another question or challenges that message. And then you'll be able to debate it as, as it goes on. So um, yeah, always uh, more and more these days, I, I try to come up with um, the, uh, the, the, the burning question about the world and life. In terms of like the pitch, so I just spoke with um, Patrick Hughes that directed another Australian director who did the Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard, those yeah, two films. Um, he was talking about, we were talking about there's more action comedies than comedy today. Your film is oh, yeah. ki kind of a sci-fi comedy. If you had to label it something else, you know, just for as the time travel. My party. film? Yeah. I mean, not really. You wouldn't call it a romantic comedy? Yeah, but I, but I would say that. Would you extra, call Groundhog Day a sci-fi comedy? Surely. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why. I guess because of the just the dissolving type thing, like the CGI and some of that stuff like that. That's I'm not sure different I call it a sci-fi comedy. Um, I, I would just call it a, a high concept romantic comedy. But high concept. But I see what you're saying. Yeah. Right. I mean, that, that would be like it's the same way Liar Liar yeah. isn't isn't a sci-fi, even though the impossible happens. Right. It's more ma magical realism, I guess. But yeah, sorry, yeah. I, I, I'm splitting hairs, but go on. Well, yeah, well, that, that's all I was saying, though, is it's like you have to have the high concept idea. Do you feel like you have to have that to like sell the script no. and move forward? No, certainly not. I'm drawn to those sorts of films, partly because they're the ones I really loved growing up, you know, like uh, Groundhog Day or yeah. Liar Liar or, or you know, um, uh, God knows what else. But um, I was also a huge fan of the Twilight Zone growing mm -hmm. up, right? Loved the Twilight Zone. And what I loved about the Twilight Zone is, is they were essentially parables. You know, they would say something like, uh, each one episode, be, be careful what you wish for, or, you know, uh, don't let your grasp exceed your reach. Or, um, you know, there'd always be sort of a, a message behind each one. But they would choose a very high concept way of... Um, you know, of, of teaching you that lesson of the universe 
interfering with this person who needs to learn a valuable lesson. Phil Connors and Groundhog Day, you know, he needs to learn the value of, of, um, of being softer and kinder and appreciating all the good things he has yeah. in life. And so the universe says, okay, well, the best way I know that he's going to learn that lesson is if he never, you know, gets to see tomorrow at all. He's, uh, you know, and, and so th there is something, uh, I, I think what I love about high concept um, and, and magical realism is that it embraces the spirit of adventure uh, that I think is important in um, in film, right? I, I do miss the spirit of adventure. I think we we strive so much these days to be gritty and real and 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 um, you know my taste is let's say mumblecore, right? I'm not a fan of mumblecore at all. I think it's a lot. I think mumblecore loses in my opinion, what's great about going to the movies, which is leaving real life, you know, leaving the monotony and the tedium of real life for 90 minutes, right? Yeah. Um, I, I, something a, a drama teacher told me in school was, that, um, you know, drama is life with the boring bits cut out. And I like that because I've got enough boring bits in my life. I don't I don't need to, to watch sort of a kitchen sink drama about, you know, two people quibbling about passing you know yeah i i enjoy high concept because it elevates a story to something that only a film can do right mm -hmm. the impossible and through that um shines a light on the human condition and hopefully you can walk away going oh my god that was fun but also made me think you know uh, it, there should be a fun element to it or at least a ride a, i don't know i i do get a little bit um uh, disappointed these days with, with does it does feel like we're not having as quite as much fun in movies anymore. I mean, just look at the Oscars now. They, it's it's yeah. really heavy, <laughs> fucking heavy, man. No, it's really it's, it's a downer, such yeah. a downer. And and I was like, oh, I mean, that's that's not what movies should be. They shouldn't be like eating your vegetables. They shouldn't be. Like, oh, I should watch that movie because I've. I mean, I got to put aside three hours and it's going to be work, but I got, no, that's not a, no, what? Our lives are that. That's what everyday life is. It sucks. The bills to pay and you fucking, you know, it's really hard. Don't let the movies be that. The movies should be the escape from all that. Mm. That's, that's surely what they're there for. So I, I'm trying to, I trying to have fun, trying to, trying to let people forget about life for a while. Quote, to quote Billy Joel. <laughs> Tell me about, um, I'm trying not to do any spoilers for later in the movie, but let's talk about like the first five or six minutes. Cause you really jump in. I mean, it's kind of like there's opening credits, but it's almost like joke, joke, joke. It's very well written and romantic comedies need the introduction to be special between the couple, but tell me how you kind of chose to start this way and how you added the comedy into everything. Yeah, it's, it's a really good observation because it is unusual, I suppose, the opening, but it's a couple of things that came into consideration. One is that we're living in this Netflix age, right? So if you don't grab people in the first five minutes, they will switch off and watch something else. Or in the sense that once you bought that ticket for $20 and you've sat down, you're going to stick around until the end for yeah. the most part, right? And so you, you could take your time a little bit more in the first act once upon a time because we, was, we were certain that audiences weren't going to, go, weren't going to disconnect or disengage. Mm -hmm. That's not true anymore, right? Once you're streaming, if you don't like something in five minutes, you'll be like, yawn, snooze, next. Everything's disposable. So you've got to be quick. 
Um, so that that informed how fast the first act was going to be. It's a very it's a very lean first act. I also thought it was fun and unusual. You know, it's always like the meet cute is something that you build up to. It's like, oh my god, and they kiss. Oh, all this sexual chemistry, and they kiss. Bam! I was like, what if you just open with the kiss? The first thing you see is them kiss, and I thought that was interesting. And then and then work back from there. Uh, so the first thing our characters do when we meet them together is kiss. And that's sort of the opening of the film. And, and so we kind of, and again, in keeping with long story short, I've cut the long story short of a rom-com down to a kiss, right? So I've, I've condensed everything. There was a lot of that going on in the film. Or, you know, and their, their, their rom, uh, relationship, that's been condensed in a series of photos too. It's like, oh my God, then they've gotten together. What's their relationship like? Nope, dip, 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 boom. I'm just showing you in very quickly, long story short, it was good until it wasn't, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of me kind of saying to the audience in the film, yeah, they met, long story short, they were together for three years on with the movie. And then, long story short, they had trouble moving on. So it was a lot of like jumping forward, skipping out a lot of the storytelling to get to the next uh, major plot point, right? So it's, it is a weird way to tell a story. And by the way, after you meet them, they kiss. The next thing we see in a rom-com, next, next scene takes place in a cemetery. I mean, of all, of all the places to, to open a, you know, to begin a romantic comedy, a cemetery is probably not the the best way to do it but it's as much about life as it is about love um and and again no spoilers but there are two endings to the film mm. the first one is the love ending and um and then there's a life ending so there's there's the the, the two final scenes right the second to last the penult penultimate scene is wrapping up the love part of the story and then the scene after that wraps up the life part of the story so there are if there's if there's an a and b story the a story is the love story and the b story is the life story and it's it's him going i've got to get my i've got to save my marriage got to save my marriage and at the same time he goes but i've also got to get my life together in order to save my, my marriage i'm actually going to figure out what the fuck life is all about mm. and those two things become linked as the, as the film goes on but um yeah look it's it's just I, i'm the opening scene was probably the hardest scene to cut in the mm. film, it was a bit of a schmozzle uh, on the night, um, but ultimately, I think it became a better version than was scripted, uh, which is my fault. But but we we, we found a way through to um, to to keep the best bits of what we had shot, uh, get rid of the stuff that didn't work, and uh, and come out and uh, come out the other side with something better. Mm. What do you, as you're kind of mentally transitioning between writer and director, how do you think about some of that? How do you keep, do you have a North star that you're like, well, the film's really about this. So the answer is always what leads to that. Like, how do you think about what's written on the page versus what's better in a spontaneous moment? Well, yeah, I think you always have to keep the bigger picture in mind, which is um, what is the story? Right. Don't worry about the little moments. Like, what's what is going to service the story? What's the best way to get people to feel what you need them to feel, step by step, until you finish the film? 
And that always takes the pressure off as a rider as well. If you sweat the small stuff, the little moments, you'll never get anywhere. I mean, you because that'll do your head in until you, you know, if you're like, oh, that one joke's not right. I'm like, forget the joke. The, the story doesn't hinge on that one joke. Mm. So some people laugh, some people hate it. It doesn't matter. If they're invested in the story, in fact, they don't even need to laugh at any of the jokes. The story should be enough to keep them engaged, mm. right? Um, so I always sort of just go, look, is this is this serving the story, you know, uh, and, and I'm ruthless in it, right? Ruthless. And I love test screening. So we didn't get a lot of chance to do that with this film because of COVID, but we were lucky enough to have three um, pretty informative screenings. And that was the best we could do. I, I'd have probably done double that if we could get people into a room. Um, but we, um, yeah, we did the best we could with what we had. Um, so yeah, you listen to the audience. I mean, I think I think it was Seinfeld that said comedy is a democracy, right? Mm. You you don't tell the people what's funny; the people tell you what's funny, and so you have to listen to them. And and if I love a joke and the audience just don't like it, well, it's gone. It's clear that it's not resonating, and mm. it it must be for reasons that I haven't figured out. But it doesn't matter. Just listen to them, and if you if you listen to them enough, you should be able to. Yeah, you should be able to make a film. I, I just love that part of it, right? The audience is, is truly the last ingredient to filmmaking. If you bring them in and include them and collaborate with them towards the end of post, yeah, you can, you can sort of change the film entirely. Um, and that's what I, I go back to the thing I said earlier about problem solving, right? You, sometimes you think you're making a film about one thing and then the audience will tell you it's kind of about that. Like, shit, we need to go back and actually make it about that thing. And, you know, listen to them. Um, but yeah, it's a case by case basis, you know, in terms of which problems to solve and how. Does that mean when you say like uh, in a perfect world, you get uh, this, uh, this feedback from the audience, are you doing reshoots or you just have extra jokes in line or how do you think about the edits and stuff? Yeah, a bit of both. Um, you know, hopefully you have time for reshoots oh, and money, you know, for there was, there was a little bit of that for uh, long story short. Thank God, because that got, that got us out of some trouble. And I think you should schedule that in. You know, reshoots should be scheduled because you can't think of everything. Hmm. No one can. You cannot think of every conceivable thing before you shoot. You know, you're gonna you're gonna the problems will be revealed once you cut it all together and be like, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't see it. But that doesn't make sense because with that saying next to that, ah shit. Okay, you know, if I just had a little moment of him on the phone saying dot, 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 I can bridge that gap and we'll be, we'll be all right. So, you know, it, it is, uh, reshoots is, uh, reshoots are essential. Hmm. I think I'd be, I'd be very scared if I went into production saying, no, nope, there's no room for reshoots. You have to think of everything first. I'd be like, fuck. Um, uh, but, uh, but also just creative editing as well. You know, it's like, oh, my God, this does it. Like the opening scene, right? We couldn't reshoot anything with Rafe because he was back in England. So our lead character was gone. So any reshoots had to be done without Rafe. Really tricky. Um, so that opening scene, no reshoots in the opening scene, even though that would have been really helpful. So we had to get very creative with how we cut that scene together, mm. you know. Does this, uh, some of this experience come from your work writing television? Like, have you written for like live audience shows or is it just about the writer's room? Like, how do you know when comedy kind of works and when it doesn't? Yeah, I've written for I've written theatre, so I um, that that definitely is a is a great way of knowing the sorts of things audiences tend to respond to. Um, 
not not specific jokes because that would you know again case by case but um yeah uh i have written for television written sitcoms and stuff and uh and and have done uh multi-cam sitcoms as an actor so and and a lot of what that involves is changing jokes on the fly when they flop in front of an audience right so audience that responded that quickly let's do new ones and working with someone like jimmy burrows you know the great multi-cam director james burrows you know you you do i learned from him and others uh how to how to tailor um you know jokes to suit an audience the sort of things that they are that we are inherently trained to laugh at that we find more comfortable you know you start understanding the psychology it's like oh why aren't they get why aren't they laughing at that joke ah is because they're not making the connection between this and this so we need to really highlight that connection and then the joke will work. So if you start to, if you have an analytical brain, it'll help you be a better editor, a better writer, and, and, and indeed a better actor, I think. Um, if you start to, not just, oh, well, it doesn't work. Why? You know, who cares? If you think about why it doesn't work, really boil it down. It's all psychology. It's all just about, um, we're, we're all very, um, you know, predictable. I guess human beings are very similar, and uh, if you can figure if you can figure out um, you know how to connect to one person, you'll you'll probably be able to connect to many many more people. Yeah. We'll just do um, one more. Thanks again for your time. Do you have any specific advice for people that are maybe trying to break in as a comedy writer? I mean, obviously, experience is is enormous, but where might they begin? How might they start with writing comedy? Oh, well, look, I mean, I, I would start, you know, if you really, really are new and uh, just start doing, you know, comedy TikToks or, or YouTube things. I mean, we didn't, I didn't have that growing up, right? I just saw the Bo Burnham special. I don't know if you saw that inside on Netflix. Oh, yeah. And I was blown away. I mean, I, I think he's incredible, right? But I also went, my God, this is what happens when you grow up with that technology, right? He's so savvy with all that stuff. I mean, he's so good with lighting and editing. And I, I, it just wasn't part of my childhood. You know, we didn't have that kind of access to all that stuff until I was well into my 20s, mid-20s and stuff. Um, but, uh, but these days, if you're a comedy writer, you have access to everything. You have a phone in your pocket. You can buy a ring light for 20 bucks. You can light it. You can, you know, cut it together on, on an app and start figuring out what people like, respond to. You don't have to perform. God knows, you you must have actor friends if you don't want to do it yourself. I mean, God, actors like cockroaches, we're everywhere. Um, so, you know, you throw a stone, you'll hit an actor. So don't worry about that. You, you'll be able to find enough people to start making it yourself. And don't, don't do it with the end goal for those to be successful. Do it with the end goal for those to be your training ground to help you and and use as a potential calling card as you've gotten good to be able to go to an agent a comedy writing agent or whoever else or even a producer and say hey listen i know you don't know me but here's some of my stuff this is the sort of comedy i write is this something you're interested in you know at least then they can see it they can you know instead of them having to take your word for it they can actually see it and you don't need everyone to love your work you just need one person to love your work the right person so you know I would say get get it out of your head to try and please everyone. You're never going to do that. I mean, it's just impossible. So just be true to yourself. And I promise you, you, there is a champion out there for you. You just have to keep going and find them. They're somewhere. 
and get better and keep training and get better and better and better and never assume that you can't learn more. You, you, you always can. And you can always get better if you just um, are willing to fail, <laughs> willing to fall flat in your face and learn from it and keep going. Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.